I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 139. <clears throat> I'm going to read Psalm 139, the first 12 verses, and then come before God in prayer, and then read from our text this morning that we're going to be considering, and do a review, and then commence our study. David writes in Psalm 139, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not darkness to thee. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father, our, our hearts are amazed, we're astounded. We can hardly frame words in our thinking to comprehend what David is saying about a God who's infinite in knowledge, infinite in space, who knows all things and is everywhere present all the time. Lord, what a comfort this is to us, even as it was to David, that there is no such thing as a God-forsaken place in all of this universe. Indeed, you are everywhere, and you are specially present by the indwelling of your Spirit in your people. And Lord, this brings comfort, this brings consolation when it would seem that, that you've abandoned us. No, you're with us. We thank you that you're, you, will, you will lead us with your eye upon us. You will establish our going out and our coming in, because you're a God who knows us and a God who is with us at all times. Lord, what a terrible thing this is for those who try to escape your presence. Where can we go to, to get away from you? We cannot flee this way, that way, above or below, where you will not be able to find us because you're with us everywhere. We pray that even this word, which is a comfort to your people, would bring conviction to those who have not this comfort and that they might flee to the one from whom they cannot flee, even to come to him through Jesus Christ. Hear us as we 
Prepare for the ministry of the word for both preacher and hearer. Come down from on high. Visit us. Open our eyes to see the kingdom of God. Open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is in the Minor Prophets, toward the end of the Old Testament. <clears throat> we commenced a study in this precious little book, very powerful and, and applicable, how relevant it is to us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Let me read all of Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of, of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. 
Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, after our introductory message, answering some questions about Jonah, we've come last week to begin to consider chapter 1. We're looking at Jonah's commission. That's what meets us here in chapter 1. We looked at the features of Jonah's commission in the first two verses last time. We saw that his commission came from the Lord, not from himself. It's something that God appointed him to do. And we saw that his commission sent him to an unexpected people. He was to go to Nineveh, to a faraway place, to Assyrians. Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament that was dispatched with a message to a pagan people. And then we saw the third feature of Jonah's commission, and it required him to preach an unpopular message. Their wickedness had come up before God. He was to go and cry against it. And then we considered the flight of Jonah from his commission in verse 3. We looked at possible reasons for Jonah's flight, and really the one that is very plain, the others, uh, not so sure, but in chapter 4 and verse 2, he really did not want to go and preach against this city because he's af he was afraid that God would grant them repentance and spare them. And we'll look at that when we come to its place. And then we saw the folly that was evident in Jonah's flight. He couldn't get away from God. He knew Psalm 139. <clears throat> yes, God's special presence was amongst his people in the promised land. Indeed, he dwelt above the cherubim, inside the Holy of Holies, above the ark. But his presence was amongst his people in Israel. And then we saw Jonah, that he found a ship. It seemed like providentially, if he wanted to get away, he could. That the Lord provided him an opportunity. There was a ship that was headed out, going far to the west. And in fact, there was still a berth in the ship he was able to secure. And then we began to consider the unexpected cost of Jonah's flight. We're going to see more of that this morning. He thought he could get away from God, but he found out that he could not. <clears throat> that brings us, having seen the features of Jonah's commission and his flight from his commission, to the return of Jonah to his commission in verses 4 through 17. When we read the book of Jonah, we are reminded of a very blessed biblical doctrine, and that is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Brethren, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints <clears throat> is secured by the reality of divine preservation. 
We persevere because God preserves us. Divine preservation assures us that God, who begins the work of salvation in his redeemed children, will surely bring that work to completion, no matter what obstacles seem to stand in the way of it. And though at times God's people may wander or even run away from him, he will not let them utterly depart from the faith. He will always bring them back to himself by renewed faith and repentance. And beloved, this lesson is taught in spades in the book of Jonah. The prodigal prophet believed he could evade God's call to preach to pagan Ninevites by boarding a ship sailing in the opposite direction to which he was called to go. Jonah was to find out that going AWOL from the Lord was as foolish as it was ill-fated and impossible. Brethren, we cannot run from God without running into Him. We think we've left Him behind, but He's waiting for us. How can we escape the God who knows everything and is everywhere? What did David write? Psalm 139, verses 3 and 9. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Did Jonah think he was pulling something over on God by sneaking away, jumping on that ship, and heading toward Tarshish? If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me. And thy right hand will lay hold of me. And lay hold on Jonah. It did. So let us ponder how the hand of Jehovah intervened to rescue Jonah, to restore him to himself, and to return him to carry out his commission. <clears throat> Notice four points this morning. We're only going to be going through verse 15, leaving verse 16 and verse 17 for other messages. But notice first, God's powerful intrusion, verse 4. God's powerful intrusion. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. God's not going to let his servant go. He's going to intrude himself into Jonah's life. He's going to intrude himself in a powerful way in the lives of these sailors that are on the ship. And this powerful intrusion is going to bring about some stern discipline. Proverbs 15 and verse 10, Stern discipline is for him who forsakes the way. Spurgeon said, if we run from God, he will send rough messengers after us. We may flee away in a calm, but a storm will soon be sent as an officer from heaven to arrest us. So God did with Jonah. Brethren, let's look at this storm. This storm is no accident. It's not a fit of Mother Nature. It's not fate. It's not bad luck. No, this storm comes from God. 
Indeed, God exhaled this storm from his own nostrils down upon the sea. The psalmist informs us that he brings forth the wind from his treasuries. And he brought forth from his treasuries great wind that day. Indeed, the Lord Jesus, the New Testament teaches us, he is Lord of the wind and of the waves. This storm, Jonah writes, was hurled. It was cast down, as it were, from the hand of the Almighty. In a full wind-up, he unleashes this wind. So the Lord unleashes furious blasts of wind that just about splintered the ship. God who commissioned Jonah would not let his prodigal prophet escape his reach. What does the Bible teach? Those whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens, he lays stripes on every son of his love, every son whom he receives. The Bible teaches that it is a bitter thing for a Christian to turn away from the Lord. You see, Jonah needed a fresh sense of the fear of the Lord. He professed that fear before these sailors, but what he professed with his mouth, he needed a feel in his heart. Jeremiah would later address a careless, wayward Judah, Jeremiah 2 and verse 19. <clears throat> Your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. And notice further, as we consider God's powerful intrusion, that Jonah's sin negatively impacted others. The ship was about ready to break up. These sailors were in fear for their very lives. These Phoenicians, they had seen storms before, no doubt. Did Jonah really think that God would leave him alone? Did he reckon that by his rebellion, that he might endanger these sailors and jeopardize the success of their voyage? Brethren, none of us are islands to ourselves. Our sin and God's dealing with us for our sin may negatively impact others. So it was with Achan's sin. It resulted in Israel's being routed in Ai. And it put his family as well as himself under God's judgment. You see, our sin affects Others, like a stone cast into a calm lake, its ripples reach far and wide. There's surely a word here for us, isn't there? The sin of husbands and wives adversely impact each other. If you've been married very long, you know that to be true. The sin of parents affects their kids. Indeed, God may visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. That's one thing that 
brings pain to the heart of a parent. He sees his besetting sins being lived out in his children. Honest parents know this. Indeed, the sins of siblings may harm brothers and sisters, especially the sins of older children upon their younger that follow them. No matter who we are, our sin injures other people. Brethren, we need to walk closely with God if we would be a blessing and not a curse to others. So we looked at God's powerful intrusion. Notice, secondly, the sailor's valiant intervention in verses 5 through 12. Let me say right away that we observe here an ironic role reversal. What do I mean? Well, Jonah should have brought God's word to these pagan sailors. Instead, he brings God's wrath upon them. Jonah should have sought their spiritual and eternal welfare. Instead, these otherwise self-centered mariners did their best to save Jonah's life. Brethren, we see here that a good man doing evil, and we see evil men doing good. Their kindness to Jonah was a rebuke to this righteous man. He should have been in their shoes, as it were, seeking to do them good. Speaking about the, this God who is Lord of the land, the dry land and the sea. Pray for his blessing upon their venture. But how in his state could he do that? Contrast a similar ordeal several centuries later where a good man sought the welfare of other storm-tossed voyagers and on that occasion an apostle arrested for serving the Lord exhorts his beleaguered shipmates to look to the Lord who promised them all of their lives if they would but obey his instructions. Brethren, there's a lesson here for each one of us. We should be humbled before God when we observe non-Christians doing more to help others and to alleviate their misery than we are doing if God has enabled us. He has given us opportunities to bless others. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we use them? Now, as we consider the sailor, sailor's valiant intervention, notice two points. First of all, the slumbering prophet and the frantic sailors. Verse 5. I'm not going to read all of the text there before you. So Jonah pays a fare, and he enters the ship, and immediately he goes down in a hole, probably in a corner, and falls fast asleep. <clears throat> Soon the sailors, they weigh anchor. They're out of ways. We don't know how far away they got from Joppa, and they're overcome by a storm. And as I suggested, these Phoenicians, they, they, were, they were the seamen. They were the tradesmen of the world of that day. They bought and sold and carried fares, uh, cargoes far and wide throughout the ancient world. This likely isn't their first storm. 
But the fury is so intense that they fear for their lives. They cast themselves upon the mercy of their gods. They use their charms and their incantations and their rituals all to no avail. Brethren, we see the the cruel impotence of idolatry. It promises what it doesn't provide. It's a lie in a man's hand, to use the language of Scripture. Idols have absolutely no power to help because heathen gods have no existence. They're manufactured by men's imaginations. In a way to run away from the true God, they manufacture false gods. God made them in His image, and and they make gods in their image. Psalmist says twice, Psalm 115 and 135, that those who worship them become like them. Though one may cry to it, says Isaiah, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Below the deck, the strange visitors, fast, sleeping. And brethren, this isn't the sleep of bold confidence in God. This isn't the sleep of Jesus on the pillow in the back of the ship, and the disciples are wondering if they're going to drown. No, this, I believe, is the sleep of a man with a bad conscience. Maybe, yes, he's weary from his travel from, from Gath Heifer down to Joppa. He may have been bone-weary physically, But I suggest that Jonah's sleep is a sad sign that he's slumbering in his presumption that he's going to get away from God. Spurgeon says, He for whom the storm was sent was the last to hear its message. When good men fall into sin, they are generally in such a slumbering state of heart that it is hard to bring them to repentance. Jonah is going to have to be brought to repentance. And it's going to be by God's very powerful intrusion, even at the expense of these sailors' valiant attempts to rescue him. Brethren, we are reminded here that a drowsy conscience in sin is a dangerous condition to be in. But God is soon to awaken His servant. So notice, secondly here, under this point, the sailor's discovery in verses 6 through 8. So the captain goes down into the hold. He rouses the sleeping Jonah. Notice first the captain's stinging rebuke. How is it that you're sleeping? How can you be sleeping at such a time as this? What's the matter with you? Are you sick? Is is there something wrong? And notice next his convicting exhortation. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. What's he saying between the lines? 
We've been calling upon our gods, and our gods are doing us absolutely no good. Maybe your God will have compassion upon us. Perhaps he will hear your cries, and he will rescue us. So the pagan captain calls upon the slumbering Jonah to pray. And there's no indication here, beloved, that Jonah prayed. His silence really is deafening until he first speaks later. He called upon him. What a rebuke. You see, this rebuke from this pagan ship captain should have awakened Jonah from his sluggishness, moving him to pray and then to preach the God who delivered them from the storm. But Jonah's sluggishness gave him no grip upon the captain's conscience. Jonah said nothing about this God who cares for pagan people. In fact, sent him to preach to Nineveh. There's no clear indication that Jonah ever told them that. Had Jonah been of a tender conscience, the captain's question and exhortation would have awakened him from his spiritual slumber to these men's desperate plight before God. Not just from the danger of the storm to die physically, but the danger of the death of their never-dying souls. Jonah had a captive audience here to preach the salvation of God, but he didn't. Now, brethren, lest we be too hard on poor Jonah, let us honestly and humbly recall our own times of spiritual lethargy. When a bad conscience sealed our lips, preventing us from speaking of the Lord and His grace to needy sinners. You see, we have no word from God when we are not walking closely with Him. Or if we did say something, we would be hypocritical. The first thing we need to do is confess our sins. And then we need to preach salvation of God to all who confess their sins. I've been walking away from God. I've been living in rebellion against Him. Your word to me was a word from God. I have been living in rebellion against Him. I confess my sin before you. I confess my sin before Him. God have mercy upon me, the sinner. Now may I pray for you and and seek to be of some spiritual good to you. God put me here and under His chastisement and gave your word to me from Him so that I might speak to you of the God who hears and answers prayers. The captain's stinging rebuke and convicting exhortation was followed by the sailor's searching examination. This is a strange scene that's before us here. And so the sailors cast lots to discover who the offender is. We read a lot about casting lots in the Bible. Sometimes to determine God's will in this matter or that, the choosing of Levites and saints to 
work in the tabernacle, sometimes just to determine God's will in a matter that isn't plain. One man comments, God sometimes sanctioned this mode of deciding in difficult cases. Compare the similar instance of Achan, whose guilt involved Israel in suffering until God revealed the offender, probably by the casting of lots. Indeed, the last casting of lots we see in the Bible was the, the 11 disciples after the death of Judas. They had two men before them, and they, both of them were qualified. They didn't know which one to pick. God wasn't giving them a voice or vision. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell to Barnabas. I mean, to uh, Barabbas. Matthias. Matthias. Thank you. <laughs> this writer goes on to say primitive tradition and natural conscience led even the heathen to believe that one guilty man involves all his associates, though innocent, in punishment. Well, God sovereignly determines how the lot falls, even when cast by heathens. We read in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33 these words, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Well, why are they casting lots? They awaken Jonah. Jonah isn't saying anything, anything here. He's silent. So God discovers him to the sailors by the casting of the lot. And directing the seamen and identifying the offender, these desperate sailors, they next bombarded Jonah with a barrage of questions. Okay, we know that it's you. They said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? We've heard it from the lot, we want to hear it from your lips. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? As a left, right, and center, they're throwing all these questions at him. They want answers. They deserve answers. Notice that Jonah answered all of their questions but one. We've seen God's powerful intrusion in the sailors', sailors valiant intervention. Notice thirdly, Jonah's partial confession and dreadful instruction, verses 9 through 12. <clears throat> now that Jonah was fingered by the lot, he openly revealed his identity as a Jew. He was pressed to confessing. Notice his bold, orthodox confession that he worshipped only God, the creator of the heaven and the earth, verse 9. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Behold the honest testimony of a good man, but a good man who is in a bad way. Spurgeon again. He spoke out like an honest man as he was. He owned that his occupation was the fear of the Lord 
And he hesitated not to claim for his God sovereignty over all the babble of gods to whom they'd been praying. He was ashamed of himself, but not of his religion. But brethren, I have to ask, we must wonder if Jonah's confession stung his conscience. He just spoke plainly about the God from whom he was, he, from whom he was running. Did it sound, his confession, hollow and hypocritical to him? I suggest that had he been walking in the fear of Jehovah, the God of heaven, who made the dry land and the sea, he wouldn't have abandoned his commission nor would he have been so ready to put these sailors in harm's way. Surely Jonah's orthodox confession indicted these men for worshiping their babble of false gods, to be sure. But I suggest that even worse, he indicted himself for not living in the faith and the fear of him whom he claimed to serve. We can easily be lip Christians and not life Christians. The proof is in the pudding. We've got to walk our talk, right? That should convict us all. One more thing. Remember the sailors' question, what is your occupation? Jonah's confession left out a significant detail, a detail essential to his exact identity. Jonah was no ordinary Hebrew attempting to run away from God, as foolish and as impossible as that would be, but a prophet of the Most High, chosen and dispatched upon a sacred mission. You see, God moved the sailors to ask Jonah his occupation, but the father of lies tempted him to keep silence. They had an honest question. Jonah responded in dishonest honesty. I mean, dishonest silence. Now, lest we think of ourselves more highly than we ought and preen our feathers before God's soiled dove, let we who think we stand take heed lest we fall. Sorry, we don't climb to heaven on the back of Jonah and other failed servants of God. No, if we get on their shoulders... We just may survey the depth of our own departures. And fall each one of us has into rogue disobedience and shameful hypocrisy, sometimes shading the truth and sometimes telling outright lies. There's not one among us who has not walked in Jonah's shoes. Let him who is without sin take aim at Jonah. Otherwise, let us confess and repent of our dodges, our deceptions, and our deviations from the truth. And let me say that another reason than that of simple spiritual slumber has been suggested for Jonah's silence when asked about his occupation. 
One writer suggests that Jonah's shame as a prodigal kept him from identifying himself as God's prophet. Well, this may well be. This is true to Christian experience. Certainly it is to yours and to mine, whether or not it explains Jonah's silence. Shame will close our mouths when a good conscience would open them with the praise of Christ. From this view, Jonah had a bad conscience, but he had conscience left of enough, left enough that he wasn't going to stand up and say things that were contrary to his own experience. That may well be true. Let me ask you, are you open about your faith and ready to witness to the Savior when you know that God has a righteous controversy with you? Only a person with a dull conscience feels no qualms when sharing Christ while he is living in known defiance to God's word. And dear ones, Jonah teaches us that this is, that's a dangerous place to be. True boldness will be in proportion to the cleanness of our conscience. Otherwise, we'll become hardened in our sin and sooner or later shame the name of Christ because we've been living the life of a hypocrite. We will raise legitimate suspicions in the minds of others about the reality of our professed faith if they find out really what we're all about, if we're not living, if we're not walking our talk. And we're not talking about perfection here. We're just talking about principled evangelical obedience to the law of God. And living with open repentance and confession when we sin. Just, in other words, living the Christian life, honestly. Robert Murray McShane's dictum that a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God applies to all Christians. What a powerful tool we are in the hand of God if we're walking before God with a conscience void of offense before God and before men and not covering our sin or trying to explain it or excuse it. On the other hand, an unholy professing Christian is a terrible weapon in the hand of the devil. And you know, I, I think these heathen sailors understood something of this principle. Observe their response to Jonah's testimony and then listen to the convicting question coming from their mouth. Verse 10. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, How could you do this? You saying who you are and what you're doing that you're running from God? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, running from God as an ordinary Hebrew is, is one thing. That's, that's sin. But if they come out and finally said, I'm a prophet. And God has sent me this way and I'm going that way. No wonder they were quaking in their sandals. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy.
You see, by his self-will and disobedience to God, Jonah thoughtlessly jeopardized the safety of these sailors and the success of their journey. But such is the effect of sin, is it not, just across the board? By our sin, we place our will before God's will. We say, not your will, but mine be done. And we place ourselves before others. I'm going to love myself, but I'm not going to love you. When we give in to our lusts and disobey God's clear commands, we harm not only ourselves, but all who observe us and may be influenced by us. You see, when my focus is upon me, I cannot love my neighbor as myself. Love, Jesus teaches us, by word and by deed will sacrifice self upon the altar of the good for others. Isn't that the message of the cross? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And maybe Jonah at this time had begun to realize this principle that love serves others. Verse 12, and he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. And notice finally, verses 13 through 15, the sailors' futile attempt at Jonah's salvation. Jonah's flight teaches us that when God's counsel and displeasure are against us, no plan of ours can succeed. We're kicking against the pricks. We're not going to make any headway. We bang our head against a wall. The wall isn't going to suffer, but we are. And the sailors' failed attempt to save Jonah teaches us that man cannot deliver us from the chastening hand of God. Verse 13, however, the men rowed desperately. The Hebrew pictures them digging their their oars into the ground. They rowed desperately to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. The harder they tried, the stormier it got. Often it is the harder we try to do our will and not God's will, the harder it gets for us. The God of the wind and waves was against Jonah's flight and against the sailor's might. If God is against us, it matters not who is for us. And we will see that if God is for us, no wind or wave can be against us. But Sometimes we must be taught the former before we understand the latter. Overcome by the raging sea and maybe too by a a sense of divine desertion, these despairing sailors, they left off their rowing. And more importantly, they turned from their impotent idols and pleaded with Jonah's God who alone could save their lives. They also begged God's forgiveness Acknowledging his sovereignty and bringing the storm as they prepare to heed Jonah's command to throw him overboard. Look at verse 14. 
Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. That's a true summary of just exactly what's going on there. Well, God had an appointment to keep with his prophet, and these men could not prevent it from happening. So they picked up Jonah, verse 15, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. We're reminded again here, are we not, that the wind and the wave are at God's beck and call? God who hurled the storm apparently stilled the sea the moment Jonah hit the water. And if any uncertainty lingered in the sailors' minds about the accuracy of the lot that was cast and in identifying Jonah, the silencing of the sea removed all doubt. This was God that was doing this. The quieting of the water likely quieted their conscience that they were doing the will of God by sacrificing Jonah to the waves. Listen to Calvin. It could not be otherwise said than that Jonah was condemned by the judgment of God. He was indeed cast into the sea by the hands of men, but God so presided that nothing could be ascribed to men but that they executed the judgment which the Lord had openly demanded and required from them. They knew that God commanded. They obeyed God's command. It wasn't something that they wanted to do. They tried everything to not to do it. But the word of God came through Jonah's lips, throw me into the sea, and the sea will stop its raging, and you men will be saved. Well, next time we're going to seek to answer the question, how are we to understand the sailors sacrificing to the Lord and they're making vows to Him? Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You see, was their response here simply a demonstration of foxhole religion, or did it display the evidence of true conversion? We'll seek to answer that question when we return to our study next time, but I have a, a few concluding words of exhortation and observation. Notice first a lesson from the storm about God's sovereignty. This storm teaches us that God authors and purposefully directs all weather events from a gentle rain shower to a killer hurricane to global warming, all that happens in God's world. He's the creator of the sea and of the dry land. It's his will that prevails in this world. Job 37, verses 11 through 13. Also with moisture, he that is God loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning and it changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction, or for his world, 
or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. Whether it's to get men's attention and correct them for their sin, or for his world, simply to replenish his creation, or for loving kindness, causing the rain to fall upon men so that they can grow crops and eat and rejoice, he causes it to happen. Brethren, as we noted before, there's no such thing as Mother Nature. Don't let the Weather Channel fool you into thinking that she exists. She doesn't. There's no such thing as chance either. God is sovereign over all. This is our Father's world. Secondly, consider lessons about God's use of storms for unconverted sinners and for slumbering saints. Every storm, however small, is not just a display of God's sovereign power, but also maybe a divine wake-up call to turn us back to God. Didn't we see this in Jonah? Jonah chapter 1, very plain. So what does this say? Well, first of all, this storm teaches us that a connection may exist between our sin and God's storms. Nothing happens to us by accident. God sent a ca catastrophic flood to destroy an unrepentant world in Noah's day. Wipe them all off the face of the map. He sent a storm here to chastise a prodigal prophet. So he may deal with us. Whether they're physical storms, lightning and thunder, and flood and tornado, shaking of the ground in an earthquake... He's in charge of everything that happens to us. It all falls out according to the counsel of His own will. Brethren, may God give us each ears to hear His voice in providence and insight from His Word to interpret, to correct us when we're, walk, when we're not walking closely with Him. Lord, I want to understand what's going on in my life. Is there a word from You about this situation I'm facing? Take me to a principle from your word. Notice second, therefore, this storm teaches us that we may be so numb to our sin that God deems it necessary to use startling providences to awaken us from our spiritual slumber. If we're slumbering and things are going well, we're not so inclined to turn to God, but sometimes He has to grab us by the lapels and shake us like a dogwood or ragdoll to get our attention. God awakened David from his sleep in gross carnality by a startling story told by a bony-fingered prophet. Thou art the man. David turned around. He'd slumbered for a year almost in his rebellion. God said, enough is enough. And he sends Nathan the prophet. Shakes him up. It rocks his entire world. God awakened Peter from his proud slumber with nothing more than a crowing rooster. And he went out, and what did he do? He wept bitterly 
And I suggest to you that all the rest of Peter's days, there was a message to him in every crowing rooster. It brought him back to that day. Maybe you can think of startling providential events in your own life that God used to awaken you from your slumber. Third, this storm teaches us that our slumbering in sin endangers others. We may endanger them by tempting them to follow our unholy example. Abraham, his sin of deceit, twice, was imitated by his son Isaac in lying and putting their wives in danger. In the process. Achan's family died with him because they were party to his sin. Brethren, we should strive by God's grace to be patterns, however imperfect, for others to follow of obedience to Christ. Not of sin, lest we harm them by their imitating our example. Finally, this storm teaches the impotence of pagan religion, even false Christian so-called religions, to give comfort when facing severe trials and tragedies. It's not a crucifix. It's not beads. It's Christ, not on a cross, but in heaven, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, who alone can help us. When we face severe trials and tragedies, we need to run back on the feet of faith and repentance to Jesus Christ. These things God uses as wake-up calls, stirring us to repentance. Let me say to you, you are in mortal danger every hour, lest you are safely hid with Christ in God. Ephesians 5 and verse 14. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We have these fearful words from Solomon. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. The Lord may bring EF5 tornadoes into our lives because we are so sound asleep to wake us up and wake us they will by his power but it will not carry us away unto destruction it will just get our feet back where they should be planted upon the rock that is higher than we are and finally we see a lesson of substitutionary atonement pictured in the sailor's sacrifice of Jonah. And we're going to look at this from different angles and on a different day. But we see here that Jonah is a type of Christ, even in contrast. Not just going into the fish's mouth and coming out three days later 
is a picture of Christ's death, burial, resurrection. But Jonah is a type of Christ even in contrast. Behold, a boatload of innocent sailors. They didn't bring upon them this storm. Jonah did. Behold, a boatload of innocent sailors saved by the sacrifice of a guilty prophet. He's thrown overboard and they're saved. Whereas in the gospel, a world of guilty sinners is saved by the sacrifice of our sinless Jesus. God's mercy spared Jonah, but it did not spare Jesus. So are there any here that don't know Christ, let me appeal to you this morning. Run to Jesus Christ and be saved. Believe upon him whom to know is eternal life. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Plead with God like those sailors did. Have mercy upon me. And you mean business with God. And he'll pluck you as a brand from the burning. And he will make you his own. Let's pray. Or Father, if there are any here that are not safely hid with Christ in God, if they've not entered the ark of safety, which is Jesus Christ, indeed we pray that for them that the water shall one day overtake them if they're not in the ark of safety. And we pray that you would open their eyes to see Jesus Christ, open their eyes to see the kingdom of God, Open their eyes to see their sin. And from it, we pray they would run on the feet of faith and repentance to the cross. Give faith and repentance to any here who may be running from you or just walking lackadaisically down the road of a Christian profession. But the root of the matter is not in them. They have a name that they're alive, but they're dead. We pray that you would give them the name, new name written upon their hearts. Indeed, that you would give, make their religion have that which is of true power by the Holy Spirit because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And for your own people, Lord, help us, we pray. Give us a fresh baptism of holy honesty to deal with our sins radically. Lord, let us not play with that which may one day be our eternal undoing. Let us not stroke that which would utterly kill us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Lord, you're a God of mercies. And we pray that you would shower them upon us this day, that we might open our eyes to Jesus, to see him, and to run in his sandal prints, following him who's the author and finisher of our faith, all the way to glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.